Want to help us make The Bunker into a better podcast? Want to be in with a chance of a free Bunker t-shirt or mug? Then just fill in our new listener survey to tell us what we're doing well, what we're doing badly and what we could improve. There's a link in the show notes, so why not fill it in while you're listening? Now we return you to your regularly scheduled podcast. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alexandro. You cannot give me a single illustration where representative government has been undermined because the representatives of the people asked for too much. Nye Bevan told the 1959 Labour Conference. But I can give you instance after instance, he continued, where representative government has been rendered helpless because the representatives of the people did not ask enough. We have never suffered from too much vitality. We have suffered from too little. The Labour Party has always, it seems to me, espoused socialism in a sort of British translation that keeps adapting both to its era and its location. But that pragmatism has always been rooted in economic policy. Facile narratives suggest that economic policy has moved unidirectionally to the right. But is that actually true? My guest today is perfectly placed to help us understand Labour's economic policy trajectory by placing it in its proper context. He's the senior lecturer in politics at York St. John's University and has just published the book Labour's Economic Ideology Since 1900, Developed Through Crises. Welcome to The Bunker, Dr. Christopher Kirkland. Thank you. Thank you and hello. Chris, I find the book very readable and actually a corrective of quite a lot of misconceptions that even as a political obsessive I had about the Labour Party's evolution. It is much more a jagged line than a smooth curve, I think it's fair to say. And I wanted to ask you, before we get into the nitty-gritty, is there a sort of bête noire misconception that you see peddled a lot on social media and sends you into sort of rage typing, um, like a bit of the book that you found personally quite cathartic to write, to set straight. Yeah, I, I think for me, for me personally, the, the, this book sort of emerges out of a understanding of, of Labour's history that, that rejects the idea of sort of new and old Labour. And we see this, saw this mm. a lot, obviously, under uh, Tony Blair and, and, and Gordon Brown with, with the idea of new Labour, but we also see it uh, subsequently with questions over sort of, did Corbyn take Labour back to old Labour? And that, that's one thing I really wanted to question within this book and say, hang on a minute, wh- what was old Labour? What was new Labour? And how yeah. do you see these in such stark contrast when, when actually they're, as you say, it's not a linear trajectory, but it there's ebbs and flows, there's similarities and differences that exist across different periods of time. Historically, how true is the idea that Labour is basically a very socialist party that is prevented from being its true self by cursed centrists? Well, I, I, I think that's partly true depending on who you listen to in the Labour Party, depending upon what their aims are and what they want to do. This is often something like, that comes out in the in the left of the Labour Party that says, sort of give socialism a chance, give, give, give us a chance to pursue this ideology. However, the Labour Party has neither been a homogenous socialist party. Uh, you look at the Labour Party over its history and it has included people of very different ideologies. Yes, you had the radical 
uh, Marxist socialists in in the at the turn of the twentieth uh, century. But you also had trade unions, people who simply wanted a better life for for the working classes, didn't really care about who owned uh, the means of production, didn't frame things in in such contrast. And in addition to that, you had sort of middle class intellectuals such as the Webbs and the Fabian Society. So, so Labour's always been this sort of broad church or this sort of melting pot of different ideas. The second thing I'd say on, on, on this is the Labour Party also, of course, doesn't have any claim over the monopoly use of the term socialism. There have been plenty of other parties on the left in British politics uh, that have claimed to be socialist or communist or some variety uh, of either of these. So it, it's not simply that socialists have solely attached uh, all their, their hopes and all their ideologies within the Labour Party, and that certainly hasn't been the dominant uh, theme throughout Labour's history. As the title implies, why do you think has Labour economic policy been particularly shaped by crises? Essentially, I think crises are very interesting points to study. They're, they're what Colin Hay calls moments of decisive intervention. They really shape our understanding of how the world operate or, or how we perceive certainly a British policy to operate. Uh, you think we, we're still talking about things through the lens of uh, the global financial crisis, something which happened a decade and a half ago now. We're still talking about the effects of COVID, a, another widely accepted crisis. And indeed, uh, last winter, we had various media outlets referring to the winter of discontent, something which anybody under what, 40 or 50 won't, won't recall yeah. in uh, the UK. So so these, these narratives are important. They, they shape our understanding and, and they can ultimately change policy direction. I want to start on the 1931 um, election, which was a, a real annihilation of Labour, and uh, ask how fundamental is that to its sort of institutional um, psyche? Because it seems to me that, as I referred to when I began my introduction, it was at that point that Labour began to reimagine socialism for a sort of British public that that tended, I think, towards a more conservative and still probably does. And if there's any period to which you could attach the old Labour, new Labour divide, it would seem to me it would be that point, actually. Well, I, I think the interesting thing about that that, that government, if, if I can go back slightly yes, further uh, than do. the 1931 election, that government in 1929-31 was exceptionally unique. And, and this almost sounds ridiculous when, when, when you hear this back. But the Labour Party, the Labour government, had only one recognisable expert in terms of finance. Nobody else even pretended that they knew about finance, and the, the expert being Philip Snowden, who, who became Chancellor of the Exchequer. But there, were, there weren't debates within the party. There, there wasn't a, a discussion of how the overarching ideology of, of, of socialism was to come about, was, it, was to be implemented in the economy. Uh, essentially, what we see is that that government uh, came in in 1929, same year as the Wall Street uh, crash in the US. Many of the problems associated with that led to 
problems in the UK under the Great Slump, problems such as high unemployment and, and, and so forth. And essentially, Labour were firefighting this. Labour were trying to find short-term solutions to overcome this outside of the idea of any ideology. The party was essentially split between people like Snowden that were arguing for uh, cuts to unemployment assistance, essentially uh, unemployment uh, benefit, and those that said this is electorally damaging as a strategy. We, we, we can't really do this. This, this is our core vote here, and you're, you're going to alienate them through these policies. And essentially, the, the, the problem in 1931 was that the Labour government wouldn't pass a budget essentially allowing Snowden to, to cut uh, spending. So Snowden, along with Ramsay MacDonald, who was prime minister and leader of the Labour Party at that time, essentially defected. They said, well, we're going to go and join other parties, uh, the Conservative Party and, and the Liberals, and, and form a national government. And this really shocked the Labour Party. You know, they, they, they took away their, their leadership. It took away, as I said, the, the only recognisable expert in financing in the Labour Party. And Labour suffered huge defeats, not only in 1931, but also in, in 1935. And to, to, to get back to, to why this is important, this suggests to the Labour Party that actually socialism isn't this entity that's almost inevitable within British politics. It's not just that we need a Labour government in office and, and socialism will materialise or, or will come to fruition, but actually we need some coherent understanding and coherent path, if you like, uh, in order to move from contemporary society through to a, a, a socialist uh, society. And we, and we see throughout the 1930s and even the, the 1940s, we see uh, people in the Labour Party develop much more uh, rigorous understandings of how uh, the Labour government can uh, lead this move, lead, lead this change towards a socialist uh, society. E effectively charter a path from A to B rather than saying B is the destination and if you elect us we will somehow magically get you there. Reading the section of that first post-World War II Labour government, I have to say it, I found it mind-boggling and I know that period quite well. It is quite famous and still to see just the breadth of the legislative slate like the amount of stuff they managed to get done in that five-year period, I think is, is simply unparalleled. And to put that in the context of a time of hardship and rationing and severe restrictions, and they did not lose like a single by-election, which I think I'm right in saying remained a record until Liz Truss, but of course, she was in power only only for um, you know <laughs> five weeks or so. So I don't think that's a fair comparison. And were returned at the next general election. So, is there a lesson here about feeling when the national mood is ready for change, and really putting your foot on the gas pedal and going for it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean. In in many ways, that that government had to do more than governments before that, ju just because of where Britain was in, in at the end of 
the Second World War, we we were going from a planned economy in the in the wartime to something uh, more akin to a, a, a piece, well more akin to the economy mm. uh, of the 1930s. But yet the 1930s weren't that great. You know, I, I, I talked about structural unemployment uh, in in respect to the, the Labour government of 29 to 31. So there was a desire to overcome sort of both of these crises, if you like, yeah. both, both the economic effects of World War II, but also the legacy of the 1930s. So, so in one respect, you would expect that government to do more than many other governments. Well, Attlee did, and, and what the Labour Party did is they, they offered something optimistic. Mm. You know, they, they, they didn't just say things have gone wrong, but they said, you know, we're going we're gonna to build council houses. We're going we're gonna to actually reimagine how industries run, and we're going to incorporate trade unions, and we're going to incorporate businesses into economic planning. There's critics who, who would say, well, okay, they did this, but essentially this was superficial. They paid the owners of uh, industry, particularly in the coal mining industry, large sums of money to take pits into public ownership. Mm-hmm. This wasn't necessarily socialist in terms of uh, changing the relationship between private and, and, and public assets. It was essentially the government acting as a private investor in, in, in these companies. This is often the benchmark. And, and of course, I, I haven't even yet mentioned the NHS, the, the sort of yeah. crowning pinnacle in, in that government. So, again, there was this sense of optimism and, and things can be better, you know, that, that Labour were uh, drawing upon and, and at least rhetorically trying to promote, certainly in the 1945 uh, general election campaign, um, but also through through some of their uh, policies. Now, having placed all this in its context, how much of a departure do you think Blair's new Labour, in quotation marks, was from the party's historical roots? I think Blair wanted to present Labour as, as something different. Blair understood the, the sort of myths of the 1970s culminating in the winter of discontent, presented an overzealous trade union and a government, uh, which was a Labour government from 74 to, to 79, uh, incapable of uh, saying no to the unions or, or mitigating against union power. And I, I think it's, it's these myths and these understandings we, which aren't necessarily borne out by some of the events uh, in in seventy eight seventy nine, that just came to uh, resonate with the electorate and the Conservative Party uh, used these uh, notions quite effectively. The famous poster with the uh, unemployment queue uh, and the slogan "Labour isn't working" in in the the nineteen seventy nine election. So there's there's the electoral sense whereby Blair wants to say this is different. We're we're, we're separate. We're not going to return. We're not going to repeat the mistakes. Of the 1970s. It's branding, basically. It's branding. It's, it's, it's for an electoral audience, yeah. it's for the electoral uh, sense. But at the same time, you still see Blair, Blair in 1994 writes a pamphlet for, for the Fabian Society outlining his understanding of socialism. He's still prepared to use these terms and these ideas, albeit with a slightly different meaning, and he, he shifts from equality of outcome to equality of opportunity, a debate which is present throughout Labour's history. 
Um, he does some other things that, again, previous Labour government or previous Labour leaders have tried. Gateskill tried to reform Clause 4 in 1960. Blair does it uh, more successfully in, in, in his uh, period in opposition. And we see some policies even in, in Blair's first government that we could say are linked to the idea of socialism as an ideology that is opposed to free markets, acceptance that wage rates aren't right at, at the lowest end of society. We, we see the introduction of the minimum wage. We see vast uh, elements of spending in terms of uh, chore start, in terms of other education uh, provisions. Blair makes a lot about this in his famous education, education, education mantra. We see parallels and we see elements, and, and this comes back to what I was saying at the start. The old versus new Labour dichotomy is essentially a false dichotomy, and 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 a more nuanced understanding is required and and, and is needed. And I, I think Blair's first government uh, certainly bears bears that out. You know, you, you see some of these themes uh, emerge. On the other hand, you see some acceptance of the existing paradigm. Blair makes it quite clear there's no return to high taxes. You know, he, he said famously he's not concerned about how much money David Beckham's earning and, and trying to to reduce that. Equally, we, we said that wages aren't, the, the wages in the, in the market economy weren't working at the bottom. There, there's no element at the top. You know, Labour doesn't go for a maximum wage or, or, or something like that. It's only one half of the market that is seen to be uh, not working. So, so, so we have this Tension, if you like, we, we, which isn't really borne out in terms of, well, this is new labour, this is something completely different. So bringing that forward today, because it's a, it's a very similar debate going on, how fair is the charge that Starmer and Reeves have turned the Labour Party into Tory light? And what does that even mean, I guess? Well, I think these are... Again, to, to sort of go back to, to New Labour, by creating New Labour, Blair was able to define what old Labour was. You know, this is high tax, high spend. Mm, mm. I think this is, this is something that Starmer and, and, and Reeves and others within the party are trying to do. They're, they're, they're trying to essentially offer a narrative of what went wrong over the last 13 years, you know, by, by saying, well, people weren't, or the electorate didn't trust us in terms of the economy. There was still this lingering idea of uh, Labour as uh, spending too much money coming out of the financial crisis, something that, again, I, I, I challenge in the book, I, I'm not sure that's a fair assertion, but each one that becomes politically astute for the Conservatives to run with and, and to develop, particularly after the, the note left at the Treasury, which says there is no more money available. So we should see it in, the, in that sort of sense that, that again, they're, they're trying to say, look, this is, we understand why things went wrong and we've got a path to, to put things right. Chris, how useful is anyway the, the current framework for discussing economic ideology, not just by Labour, but by the Tories as well? Like, to give an example, is privatisation versus nationalisation really the right framework for that debate in 2023? I think it had its uses. And, and I think the, the, the uses stem from, well, when things go wrong, what happens? Who, who, who's to blame? How do you get accountability? Yeah. You know, anybody who's another pet peeve of mine is, is sort of 
when you use the trains and, and your train is cancelled and you say, well, can I just get the next train? And somebody says, no, that's a different company. Of course you can't get the next train. You'd, you'd have to buy another ticket. And and it's those sorts of things. You think, well, hang on, it's a train. I've brought, I've brought a ticket. Why can't, why can't you just do this? The idea being, if, if it was nationalised, it would all be the same company it would be british rail or a british rail 2.0 or, or, or something so you'd be able to do that and there, there would be flexibility there would also be accountability if you didn't like the way things were run you know get rid of the government what i do think though in in terms of this is that there's a false understanding of national debt uh within this and, and i think this is something that came out of uh, the financial crisis and and has been present in uk politics since and we see this. David Cameron sort of associates debt and paying off debt with economic credibility. And, and he argues that if households have debt, they know they need to pay it off. You know, if you or I are indebted to the bank and we can't pay, the bank takes our house, right? It, take, it takes our car. It takes whatever we've given up as collateral for, for that loan. National finances don't work that way. You know, you're not going to get a situation whereby... The government says, oh, well, we're thinking of defaulting on a loan. You know, let, let, let's negotiate with the bank which, you know, which county we want to, to cede, yeah. you know, to, to give to, uh, to, to the bank. The other thing governments can do, of course, as, as we've seen in quantitative easing, simply print money. You or I can't do that, certainly not legally anyway, and I'm not advocating doing that <laughs> for anybody uh, to, to suggest otherwise. Um, but governments can simply print money, and and maybe maybe we need to have an argument and say, or, or a, a, a debate and say, well, hang on a minute. Actually, there are other crises going on in terms of cost of living crisis, in terms of uh, poverty, in 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 terms of uh, social services. Do we need to reimagine the way that government financing operates? Do do do, do we need to do this now? I'm not necessarily suggesting any any outcome to that. As, as I said, there, there are inflationary pressures, there, there's uh, problems with doing that. But we are stuck in this sort of debate about nationalisation, privatisation that hasn't expanded into these areas. Yes. You know, and, and, and when we say this, it's, yes, I, th- I think that's an important debate, but it's only part of the debate we should be having. And we, and we should be having a more robust debate about what some of the paradigms are relating to economic liberalisation or, or, or neoliberalism that emerged in the 1980s, so some of the, the strengths and weaknesses within, within that model, I think. In a way, it's uh, got longer history than this. This is, this is sort of Keynes's mm. vindication, yes. almost. That actually, when, when, when governments are uh, facing the, these moments of crises, they say, look, actually, balanced budgets yeah. <laughs> in the short term, we, we don't actually need you know, we, we can we can spend this money. Mm. And and I, I think this is what a lot of the arguments is, a lot of the question marks from the left over, over Starmer is saying, well, hang on a minute, why can we do this in certain crises? Why can we have quantitative easing? Why can we expand the state in certain crises, but not in others? Mm. What, what What's the rationale here? Yeah. And, and their, their conversations are, frankly, I, I think we do need to uh, engage with more and, and, and have more debate and joined up thinking about. I agree. Uh, because we, we were sort of at, we, we're at another stage in, in the 1970s whereby there's a contrast between sort of short-term political motivation, i.e. 
winning the next election or ensuring government is re-elected and and long-term economic planning and, and strategy and we see that you know I, know I know i've talked about the railways once but we see that with scrapping hs2 yeah. you know very short-term decision making saying well we can free up capital or we, or we can stop building projects in certain constituencies but the question is what do we do when hmm. uh in in two or three years time when when rail capacity is is far too high you know it's at 100 percent at the moment now what, what what do we do in the future yeah. and these are the questions. This is this is where quantitative easing and, and 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 mechanisms can come in. To finish on a on a more positive note, there is a general narrative that Labour, uh, with the economy as it is, with Brexit, it it will face a very harsh economic environment if it takes over next year. And that will make for a torrid time and possibly a one-term government, if that. Um, but what you write again and again in the book is that crises have provided historically opportunities for labor to be actually more socialist than it would otherwise could have been, more left-wing, more radical. So is there a more positive hypothetical going forward? Well, I, I, I think in, in, in the other crises where Labour have utilised the crises and, and used these to, to shape its understanding, we see the Labour Party putting forward different narratives, different understandings. Uh, we, we, and we can see this. We can see the tension between Gordon Brown's government that saw 2007-2008 as uh, maybe a, a problem of growth and, and the economy not growing versus the Conservative Party that wanted to frame it as a spending crisis or a, or a debt crisis and and this is this is this is where i argue that crises can lead to new narratives crises encourage us to think about uh our understandings if, if we're talking about crises it's widely accepted something's gone wrong so the obvious question is well what's gone wrong how how, how do we understand that and how do we conceptualize a way forward the problem is at the moment and, and i think where this uh, where, where, where your question leads to, is the idea that, yes, we can accept things have gone wrong. But the question is, how, how do we respond to that? And at the moment, the response from Starmer and the, res the response from the Conservative Party is still stuck within this narrative of, of debt. Mm. You know, we, we simply can't afford to do this. This is a luxury. We'd, we'd like to do this. We'd like to be able to afford this. But we simply can't. And, and I think we need to move on beyond this and we, and we need to find a new way of framing or understanding things. Because again, you know, government debt is fairly meaningless unless you actually say, well, we're going to eradicate it. Even George Osborne's austerity, uh, backloaded though it was, never actually planned to eliminate yeah. government debt, planned to get the deficit down, but they're, they're, they're two very different things. And, and I think we need an awareness of, what this debt is, where, where this is coming from, and, and a new means of understanding how that shapes policy options. Because once we start doing that, then we can have maybe a fuller range of debates over something more positive to emanate out of, out of crises. Dr. Christopher Kirkland, thank you for your insight. Thank you. Labour's economic ideology since 1900, developed through crises, is out now. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day. So if you like our work, you can and should support our work.
For as little as £3 a month on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I started with the words of Nye Bevan, and I will end with possibly his most prophetic and enduring prediction. If we are not prudent, soon millions of people will be watching each other starve to death through expensive television sets. This is Alex Andreu in the bunker saying over and out. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I could find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the Bunker Daily was written and presented by Alexandre. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Our direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.